Good morning. Good morning. Someone's awake. Just one. That's okay. I'll, I'll wake the rest of y'all up. Hey, I want to say super pumped to have Wes back. Wes, if you want to fill out a connection card, we'll get you plugged in. We say that to all our new people that have been away for a while. So, no, I, I kid. I kid. I love that guy. I love his wife as well, Lynn. Super big fans of you both. So, glad that you were able to be refreshed and super excited to have you back. We are starting a new series this morning in the book of Romans. I don't know how long we're going to be in the book of Romans. I will tell you, as I was preparing and looking, I did see some churches that have spent three to five years in the book of Romans. I can tell you, we will not do that. Um, But we will be in Romans at least until January. That will get us through about Romans 8. And then if we need to come up for air or do a a pivot, well, eventually we'll get through the whole book. I just don't know how long it's going to take us and if it's going to be in in different sub-series or whatever. So that's a a little bit of deal about about where we're going. And and to get us started this morning, I have two questions. They're they're kind of like the same side of one coin. The first question I have is, who in here enjoys reading? Show of hands. Okay, wow, a lot of you. Yeah, LeVar Burton would be very proud, right? Take a look. It's in a book. Reading Rainbow. Yeah. All right. Now, to shame some other people, who in here hates reading? LeVar is not impressed with you. Not impressed, okay? And I joke. I realize that reading for some of us is more of a chore than, than for others for whatever reason, and, and there, there's no shame. I, I don't care if you like to read, don't like to read, whatever. I suspect that if you say you don't like to read, it's probably because you haven't found something that you're interested in. Um, I think all of us would would enjoy reading if we found a a, a book that was good that we enjoyed, right? But that's sort of besides the point. Uh, What I want to talk with you today is is about reading a little bit. And first off, I want to point out that you all are readers, whether you would like to admit it or not, right? We read articles online. Most of us read too many social media posts. Um, is a dig. Uh, all right. I, I told a lot of jokes in first service that no one laughed at too. And you know what? I don't even care. <laughs> I don't care. I think I'm funny and that's what's important to me. So I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to keep dropping bombs that no one laughs at and I'm going to laugh in my heart and I'm going to feel really good about that. So we read social media posts. We read, uh, if you're going to like fix a, uh, an engine or something, you got to read through the, the, the manual, that type of stuff. Some of y'all like to read histories and biographies. Personally, not my cup of tea. Uh, the biographies that I've read are too, way too detailed. I'm kind of a tell me the time, don't, don't build me the clock kind of guy. So not a big fan of that. Uh, some of y'all like, like fiction or nonfiction, right? Uh, it doesn't matter. Here's my point. We, we all read different things. And what we're reading matters. What we're reading matters in that it, it, it tells us what's the appropriate question to ask what we're reading. So it's like this. When I want to know how to plant a garden, I don't pick up a People magazine from the local thing at the, the cash register, right? I, I'm not going to go to People so I can figure out how to, how to plant uh, a garden. In the same way, I've got like some of these crow's feet and wrinkles starting on my face. As many of you are pointing out my hair is gray. Thank you. I'm aware, right? I have a mirror, right? When I, when I need beauty advice to keep my good look and keep this dad body in shape, I'm not turning into a farmer's al- almanac. My point is this. 
that, that certain books and certain things that we read, that we go to them for different things. The source material that we're reading matters. It clues us in to the type of questions that are appropriate to ask. We can ask different things of newspapers, that, different questions than what we would ask from a scientific journal or a magazine, all of that kind of thing. Now, as a pastor, I read a lot of theology books and a lot of Christian nonfiction, so like small group material. When I'm reading science fiction, which I love, I love Lord of the Rings, big fan of Chronicles of Narnia, the Wing Feather Saga, there's this spy thriller that is like totally junk fiction, a guy named Brad Thor writes it, but huge fan of that, when I'm on vacation like that. I, I don't really care who writes those books. When I read fiction, science fiction doesn't really matter to me. I just want to read a book that's well written and has a compelling story. When I read theology books and small group curriculum, I care immensely who the author is. Now, it's not that I won't read people that I disagree with, but I, I really want to know who's writing when I'm reading theology and Christian nonfiction. I want to know because I want to know where they went to school. I want to know what their perspective of the scripture is and Jesus. I want to know what their life experience is because I want to know if I can trust them or if I can't trust them, I want to know where are some areas in their writing that I might have to be on my guard, okay? This morning, we are kicking off the book of Romans, the book of Romans, and in Romans 1, Paul starts out by telling us who he is as the author. And so I would like to clue you in to who the author is because it's important. And I think that after you discover who is writing to the Romans and to us, I think you'll be encouraged and you'll be excited about going through his book, Romans chapter 1. So we're going to unpack that together. And I'll just lay out a few things. Paul, Paul is the author of, of Romans, but he's also the author of, of about half the New Testament, right? Half the New Testament. Now, as an author, if you like, can put, like, inspired scripture writer on your resume, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Now, not everybody cares about the Bible. Some, some people, you might be one of them. That's okay. We're glad you're here. You might be saying, well, I don't really care about the Bible. I don't think it's trustworthy. A bunch of old white men just threw these books together in a room somewhere, and that's actually not true. That's for a whole other sermon. We're not going to talk about how the Bible is put together, but we actually, we actually can trust Scripture, and I'd love to talk to you about that someday. But you might, might be saying, well, I don't care that Paul wrote the Bible. Why does that matter? The Bible, whatever, not that big of a deal. And so I want to clue you in on, on who Paul is this morning, and I hope that as we, we walk through the story that we can build his credentials so that you will be eager and excited and anticipate where we're going to go and what we're going to learn as we unpack Romans together. So to do that, open your Bibles. We're going to start in Romans 1. We're just going to do seven verses this morning. Romans 1, 1 through 7. So picking up in verse 1, I'll be reading from the NLT this morning. It's on the screen as well. It says this, This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Now, there is a whole lot that is packed into this first sentence, like 20 years of ministry packed into this first sentence. And I'm going to give you an overview of it in a minute, but we'll, but we'll keep reading. Paul says, I'm a slave. I'm a servant of Christ. I've been sent to proclaim the message of Jesus, the good news. And as, as you're reading, it's always helpful to ask questions of the text. So you might be wondering, what is this good news Paul is talking about? Well, he tells us in verse two, that God has promised this good news long ago through his prophets and his holy scriptures. Verse three, the good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. 
And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere about what God has done for them. Okay? And I want, I want, I want all of us to remember this last sentence as we work through Paul's life. He says, I am writing to believers in Rome, to believers throughout history, to Christians everywhere, and I I want them to know the privilege and the authority that God has given to me to tell everyone everywhere about Jesus Christ. As we go through Paul's life and unpack this, I want you to remember that phrase. Paul says, it's been a privilege. It's been a privilege to tell others about Jesus. And why have I been telling others about Jesus? We'll continue so that they will believe and obey him and bring glory to his name. Church, this is why we make disciples. This is the goal, so that others will believe and obey and bring Christ glory. I want you to notice the two words there, belief and obedience. As we read through the book of Romans, we are going to come up against some difficult teachings. And I just want to challenge you and me right now to set out Let's all just agree to let God be God as we work through Romans. And if we come up against a difficult thing or something that we might disagree with, let's check our hearts and in humility submit to the Lord in belief and obedience. Countless times throughout Scripture, we're told that faith is the foundation for our salvation. Faith is the foundation for our salvation, right? We we believe and we're saved. But here and in James and elsewhere, we're told that our faith is, doesn't stay alone. It's by faith alone that we're saved, but our faith never stays alone. It produces in us good deeds, good works, faithful obedience, okay? So they both go hand in hand. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by our faith, but our faith in Jesus changes us so that we obey. Both are very, very important. I just want you to highlight or circle that under that. We believe, and that belief produces obedience to Jesus in our lives. We'll continue, verse 5. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them, so that they will believe and obey and bring glory to his name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. The Romans and all of us, you are included among this group. You've been called by Jesus. Paul says, I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his own holy people. And he concludes with a prayer. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So to begin his book, Paul says, here's what I want you to know. And I want you to know, he's written a lot of letters to a lot of churches, and that's most of the New Testament. Romans is a letter, but it's more than a letter. It's a book. It's a book. Paul sits down, and after 20 years of ministry experience, he says, I want these people in Rome and all across the world, here's what you need to know to love Jesus, to live with Jesus, to have joy, and to have peace. Here it is. And so he says, I want you to know who I am. I want you to know what the message is, and I want you to know what the power of this message is. What does knowing the good news about Jesus, what does it bring to the lost world? And he says, here's what it brings. It brings grace, and it brings 
peace. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard the word grace defined as unmerited favor. That's a good definition, but I want to unpack it with you a little bit further. What does it mean to, to receive unmerited favor from God? Let's, let's start with the first one, favor. What is favor? What is favor? Favor means that you are a very, very special person to someone. It means that when you walk in a room, if someone favors you, that their eyes light up. They are happy to see you. You are one of their favorite persons. They have favor for you. And if that favor is unmerited, it means that you are a very, very special person to them without having to do anything, right? Doesn't matter if you're awesome at your job or if you fail at life. Doesn't matter if you're weak or strong. Doesn't matter what you do. You are favored. You're a special person. And when you walk in the room, whether you had a good day or a bad day, You are a favorite person. Their eyes light up. People are happy to see you. Paul says this good news about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, brings grace to the lost. He says it it brings favor. Grace makes you a very, very special person to God without having to work for it, without having to do anything, for no reason of your own doing. You can become a very, very special person to God. Now, church, I want you to hear me on this. If you feel weak this morning, if you feel like a failure, if this last week you lost it on your kids and went off in anger and said things that you regret and you feel like a lousy parent, if you feel like a lousy Christian, like you didn't read your Bible enough again or spend any time in prayer or you just can't string a a week together where you stay off alcohol or, or whatever, social media, name your drug, right? You just feel lousy about yourself. If you feel weak and like a failure... The good news is that you can still find favor with God. You can still be a very, very special person to God without changing a thing. Your weakness, your failures, they can't stop God's grace. His, his grace, his favor, it promises to make you a treasure before him for no reason of your doing or not doing. If you're in Jesus you can be a very, very special person to God, period, no matter what. It feels good to be a special person, doesn't it? It feels good when you walk into a room and someone's eyes light up, someone's happy to see you. We call that feeling when we receive grace, when we, when we receive a very special treatment from someone, when we receive favor, that, that high energy, that happy feeling, we call that joy. It fills our cup up. To know that we're accepted, that we're loved, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. And here Paul says the message of Jesus Christ, it guarantees you access to that feeling, to joy. Because you can receive grace, you can receive favor for no reason other than because God has chosen to show it to you. Paul says this good news brings grace, which leads to joy and it brings peace to the lost. Do you know what peace is? Peace is, a pow- is the powerful rest that comes from knowing that everything is going to be okay. While grace brings joy, again, that's that high energy feeling of excitement, knowing that someone is happy to see you. It's awesome, but we know we can't live at a, at a high state of energy, a high state of joy all of the time. Once we get up there, once we get to the mountaintop, we've got to come down off of it to a low place of peace and contentedness. Paul says the gospel brings both. 
It brings that high energy joy because you know you've found favor with God and also a peace, a low energy rest where you can just sit back and know that, that everything is going to be okay. It might not be okay right now, but you have a contentedness, a reassuredness in your heart that everything will be okay because God has shown his favor to you and will continue to do so. The long and the short of it is that Paul wants his readers to know that's what's going to come in the book that he's about to write. If you will listen to what he says and the message that he is going to proclaim, you will find grace, which leads to joy and peace. Now, Rachel and I were watching a a TV show recently, or a football game, I don't remember what we were watching, and this commercial kept coming on. This commercial kept coming on about a new online pharmacy that just opened. Apparently, you don't even have to see a doctor anymore to get a prescription. You can just like fill out a survey on this app and then you can get a prescription or whatever. And I need you to hang with me for a minute because I know what I'm going to say might be kind of offensive, but ju- just hang in, okay? I'm not going to condemn anybody, but, but I want to I speak to this, this commercial for a second because I think it's, it's a false narrative that, that is being put forth in our society and, and people are buying into it. So the actor comes on the commercial and she says, depression is like a never-ending day. It's like a never-ending day. It's, depression is, is not eating anything or it's eating everything. Depression is, is taking all of the mirrors down in my room. She goes on to say, but, but starting this medication from this online pharmacy, it saved me. It saved me. Through this website, she says, getting this prescription, it's never been easier, and now through taking antidepressants, she realized what, and I quote, what joy is, and what peace is. Church, when I heard that, I wanted to weep. I didn't, but can we all just agree for a second that joy and peace are not found in a bottle of pills? I'm not against medication. The Bible is not against medication. Sometimes we need medication to get us to a place where we're balanced enough to to go to the source where joy and peace can actually be found. I'm not against meds, but can we all just agree together that your hope is not found in pills? It's not. Do you know why suicide is so high in our country? Because this is the narrative that is being put forth. We have actors and commercials saying, if you're depressed, if you crave joy, if you crave peace, if you want to know that everything's going to be okay, well then just get this prescription and you got it. And people sign up and they get on it and then nothing changes. And what are we left with if we buy into this? No hope. Friends, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, there is hope. It's just not found in medication. Again, I'm not against it. The Bible's not against it. It might be helpful, but can we all just agree together that the source of joy and peace is not found in pills. It's found in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you can know him, and he wants to give you grace, favor. Paul says, do you want to know that somebody lights up to see you? Do you want to know that the, do you have a longing in your heart? That the, do you want to know that the creator God looks down on you and when he sees you, there is a twinkle in his eye and he loves you and he wants to be with you? Do you crave that? Good, that's what you were made for. You just can't find it from a pill. You can find it in a relationship with your king. Do you want joy? 
Do you want to know that everything is going to be okay, that you're going to be okay? Good, Paul says, this is what you were created for. That desire in your heart is awesome. It's good. You just can't find it in a bottle of pills. You can find it in a relationship with your king, your creator, who loves you and who died for you. We might need meds to get us clear enough to meet with Jesus, and that's okay. But let's not go to meds as our savior. They can't save us. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Here in this short section of scripture, we discover where grace, unmerited favor, joy, and peace are found. It ain't found in bottle pills. It's found in the good news about Jesus Christ. This message is powerful. It will change your life if you respond to it. And for you to understand how powerful it is, I need you to understand who is writing this book of Romans. In the first verse of Romans, he says, he says, I'm Paul. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I've been chosen by God to be an apostle, to be sent out to preach the good news. That's who Paul is now as he's writing from the city of Corinth. I want you to know who Paul was 20 years before this. 20 years before this. And to do this, we're going to have to go back to Acts. We're going to be in Acts 7 through the end of the book. I'm going to try and summarize it in 10 minutes. If you've never read the book of Acts, I would encourage you this week so that you can understand who is writing to you and to me and to the Romans. Go read Acts 7 through Acts 26 in in, in some morning. Probably take you about 35 minutes, maybe 40 minutes. It will be worth your read. But I'll, I'll summarize it for you now. Who was Paul before he was the author of half the New Testament, and this wonderful book of the Romans. Who was this guy? To learn, we have to go to Acts 7, where we come across a new believer to Christianity. When we come across this young man, he's standing before a group of combative peers. He's been called to task at his local church. He's been called before the elders, the rulers of his local church. And they're frustrated because he's following this guy that their leaders just killed, Jesus. And they want to know what ground he has to stand on. Why are you following this guy? This isn't, this isn't the Judaism we grew up with. This isn't the traditions we've been following. What's wrong with you? And this young man, he, he schools them in some theology. He takes them back to the Old Testament. And for, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes, he explains from Adam to Abraham to Moses. He explains from King David all the way through the prophets. He explains how the Old Testament is, was, and always will be pointing to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He unpacks all of it, and his logic is sound. They can't argue with him. We're told in Acts 7 that the Spirit is on him. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he is bringing truth. He's bringing truth so much so that his face lights up like a light bulb. Now let me just say, if I'm ever preaching and my face lights up like a light bulb, you should start taking notes, right? Because whatever I'm saying is probably pretty spot on, probably pretty accurate. It's probably not going to happen, but if it does, you should get that notepad out, right? Amen. Write it down. His face lights up. He's bringing truth. And these guys, they can't handle it. And he says, listen, this is your problem. It's the same problem with Jews throughout the centuries. God comes through the prophets, he comes through angels with revelation, and you despise it, and you reject it, and you murdered the Son of God. You can imagine how well that went over. He just called his elders a bunch of murderers. Well, they're ticked. They can't listen. They don't want to hear it. They take him to their Jewish supreme high court, the supreme court. 
And they bring him before the Supreme Court justices of the, of the church at that time. They say, this guy, we can't deal with him, you deal with him. Supreme Court justices say, what's up? What, what's wrong with you? And again, he launches into his sermon. He says, listen, from Abraham to, to, from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets, it's all been about Jesus. And he came and God told you he's going to come through the prophets and the angels and you rejected it like your people have always done. And you murdered him in cold blood. He calls the Supreme Court justices murderers. You can imagine how that went over. They are not fans of this. They can't hear what he's saying. They don't want to hear what he's saying. This message is going to topple everything that they've built their lives and community on forever. They reject it. They call him a blasphemer. How dare you say this? They question him harder. And we're told that young Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees a vision of Jesus. And he recounts what he's seeing to these Supreme Court justices. And he says, I know you can't hear me, but listen, right now I've seen heaven opened and I see King Jesus. He's not, sta- he's not sitting on his throne. He's standing up at the right hand of God. Now, some of y'all watched the game last night, right? The OSU game. Some of, all, yeah, yeah. Some of you guys are, are crazy fans. You really bought into it. What happens when they finally score the first touchdown? It took a bit. Or do you sit down? No, you stand up. Why? Because you're invested and you love what's happening. Jesus looks down from heaven and he sees, he sees Stephen. He's bringing the word. He's preaching truth. And he is up out of his throne saying, yes, amen, that's my guy. You tell him, Stephen. He's standing. And the leaders in the church at that time call it blasphemy. How dare you? We killed that guy. He was a false prophet. He was a false messiah. How dare you say that? They call it blasphemy. They drag him outside of the temple and they begin to stone him to death. The way they stoned people, they had like a a 12-foot place. They threw him off so that you couldn't run away. (laughs) Maybe, you know, throw him off of a height so he's kind of good and got his legs broken and then they threw rocks at him until he died. It is here in Acts 7 where we are introduced to Saul, who is Paul, who would one day write the book of Romans. And we're told that Saul is standing by looking over the coats of all the men and women that are pummeling Stephen to death with rocks. And he's looking on in approval. Saul is a hotshot lawyer, probably from a wealthy family, probably from a family of name, of prominence. We know that because Saul, who is Paul, I'll use those names interchangeably, Paul has Roman citizenship. You did not get Roman citizenship unless you had money, fortune, or fame. Probably both. He was from a great family, a Jewish family, raised in the best schools, got an Ivy League full-ride scholarship to be educated in Jerusalem under the Harvard-like professor who was the Rabbi Gamaliel. Full-ride hotshot lawyer, up-and-coming guy. He is standing on and watching in approval as this mob is full of frenzy, excitement, hysteria as they stone a Christian. And he thinks to himself, not only do I agree with what's happening, but he's a political sucker. I see my, my shot for power. I see how I can advance myself in this world further. What if I become the guy that leads the extermination against these Christians. Look at the people. They're eating it up. 
And so he, after they, they kill Stephen, he goes into the Supreme Court and he says, I want to exterminate this cult. I want to exterminate these people who follow Jesus. We want to kill this, right? That's what, I want to be the guy. I want to be the guy that leads with terror and torture to exterminate this cult. They say, awesome, you got it. James Bond, permission to kill. He goes from church to church, taking down names. I want to know who here, who here follows this guy named Jesus. He takes down names, takes down addresses, and then he and his cronies go from house to house. They kick down doors. They drag out families, men, women, children. Through terror and torture, they get these Christians to renounce their faith. Admit it. This Jesus guy, he wasn't who he claimed to be. Renounce your faith. Saul does this for a year, a year and a half. He's pretty successful at it. So much so that the church in Jerusalem goes underground, most of the believers flee. He's like a rabid dog, foaming at the mouth for more violence and more power. Jerusalem is not enough. At the end of a year, year and a half's time, he's crushed the church, as I said, and he, he decides, I'm not just going to be here. I'm not just going to listen to the Roman jurisdiction. Sure, they gave us jurisdiction over Jerusalem, but this church stuff, this Christian stuff is spreading. I want permission to go elsewhere. And so he goes back to the Supreme Court, and he says, there's other people in Damascus. They need tortured. They need terrorized. This, this cult needs snuffed out. Can I go? And the Supreme Court just said, yes, absolutely. You did a great, great, great job here. We'll send you. You go. You keep doing what you're doing. Keep terrorizing. Keep torturing. Snuff this thing out so he and his posse they mount out they head from from Jerusalem up north to Damascus there's only one problem on the way to Damascus Saul encounters the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ God looks upon Saul with favor he becomes a very very special person to God and we have to say it's because of nothing that Saul has done up to this point knowing his record. Jesus gives him grace. He favors Saul for no reason at all. You can read about it in Acts 9. King Jesus shows up, and we're told Saul is blinded by the light. There we go. I got got more lasses, huh? Okay. Yeah. Actually, that's that's what that song's about, if you knew that. Kidding, it's not. That's the last lie I'll tell this morning. Literally, Paul is struck blind. He's thrown to the ground, probably from his high horse. That's another pun for you. <laughs> That's bad. He's thrown from, thrown from his high horse. He's struck blind. King Jesus shows up and he says, Hey, Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? Saul is dumbstruck. He wants to know, Who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. I want you to get up and I want you to go to a city you'll be told what you must do. And Saul has to be led into a house on Straight Street by, owned by a man named Judas where he spends three days in utter blindness. And over those three days, he gets to contemplate his life and he realizes that not only is he now physically blind, but he has been spiritually blind for his entire life. All of the languages that he spoke, Greek, Aramaic, Latin, all his Ivy League education, all of his theolo- the- theological degrees, more degrees in Fahrenheit, right? All of it, all of it, he's been wrong about everything. Jesus was real. He is real. He's alive. And Paul and his people murdered, murdered the Messiah. And as Saul is contemplating his life choices, we're told that God speaks to another Christian in the town of Damascus, a man named Ananias. Ananias is one of the church leaders in Damascus. God comes to him. He says, hey, 
There's a guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. You heard of him? And I says, yeah, all of us have heard of him. We heard about his trip to Damascus. How, we, how could we not? We've got believers from Jerusalem that fled from, they've told us. I've listened to these believers recount as their wives and daughters were carried out of their house and beaten and tortured until I renounced my faith. Ananias listened with tears in his eyes and he thought, if this guy comes to my town, am I gonna be able to, to stay true, to stay loyal to Jesus if they take my daughter? If they take my wife? Will God give me the grace to stay true? Yeah, God, I heard about this guy named Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Osama bin Laden. We, know, we all know about him. God says, good, okay. He's blind. He's praying to me right now. I need you to go see him. I need you to heal him. And Ananias is like, uh, he's blind? Great. How about I don't go heal him? How about I go take the life out of his body? Right? God says, no. No, I need you to heal him. I need, you, I, ne- I need you to heal him. He is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as all of the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias, he had faith in God. He knew God, and that faith compelled obedience. He trusted. He obeyed. He went in. He found Saul. He prayed over Saul. Saul's sight was restored. He was healed. And Ananias brought him to his church community to participate in the Bible study. It's a little tense Bible study, right? When they asked him to pray, everybody's praying with one eye open because of Saul. Is he going to kill me, right? They didn't trust him yet. We're told in Acts 9, three days after Paul the terrorist was on a murderous spree throughout Jerusalem and Damascus. In Acts 9, we're told three days later, immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues. Church, this terrorist, this terrorist against Christ and Christ followers, this guy who used to torture Christians met Jesus on a highway and in three days he can't stop singing his praises. Everywhere he goes, Paul proclaims Jesus and the grace and the peace that came to him through the Savior that is not dead, but is alive. And just so I'm clear, I want you to remember what Paul writes to us in this first section of Romans. He writes to us, he says, I want you to know of the privilege of this calling. Remember what God just told him in Acts 9? He said, I'm going to call Paul He's going to serve me, and I want him to know what he must suffer for my name's sake. If you go and read Acts, you'll discover that Paul did many amazing things. Right after he gets saved, he goes to an island, and he meets with the governor of that island, and there's a sorcerer there who's really ticked that Paul is there, and he's bending the ear of the governor. And he keeps trying to interfere, and at one point, Paul says, listen, you're a doofus, and you're going to be blind because you serve Satan. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. And then the guy's blind. And then he shares the gospel with the governor and the governor converts to Christianity. He heals a paralyzed guy. Paul casts out demons. He does all kinds of signs and wonders that accompany his proclamation of the gospel. He preaches the word both in word and in power. But everywhere he goes, he comes up against this angry mob that he used to lead. Paul is beaten, imprisoned, Multiple times. He's stoned. 
multiple times. At one point, he is stoned to death. The Bible says he is stoned, and the people think that he is dead, and they carry him out to where you throw limp dead bodies, because that's where you put them, and then the vultures come, and they eat them, and that's where they threw him. It says the believers of that community came out, and they prayed over him, and God either resurrected him or healed him instantly from what would have eventually led to his death. He's been stoned to death. He's been imprisoned. He's been beaten. He's been run out of town after town. Paul faces in his journey and his mission over 20 years disagreements with church people, right? Somebody's cousin and him have a falling out and they have to break ways and there's this whole deal. Paul tries to go to different places because he thinks this is where God's calling him. But Jesus is like, nope, you're not going there. And then he tries to go a different place because he thinks that's where God's calling him. And God's like, nope, not there either. Finally, Jesus is like, this guy, right? He can't. And he's like, gives him a vision. He's like, here's where I want it. Let me spell it out for you, right? Paul has disagreements with other believers. His ministry is hard. He doesn't always know where God wants him to go. He sometimes blunders around blindly. He doesn't always have the answers. He doesn't always know where to go. And everywhere he goes, There are some that follow his teaching and others that reject him, that plot his death, that beat him, stone him, and run him out of town for 20 years. Paul suffered more in his life than most, and not because of unwise choices, but precisely because he was called to the privilege of telling others about Jesus, the man that he used to torture and terrorize people about. He was so transformed through the grace and peace of the gospel that his life was forever changed. Some people that I read, some some, uh, commentators that I read, said that Paul may have lost his wife over this. We're not clued into who to Paul ever being married, but there's some indications that he might have been. And you can imagine, as a young female, you link your, your, your carriage up to a man who's a young, upstart, full-ride scholarship, Ivy League, hotshot lawyer, and then he throws it all away to travel around and get beaten and thrown into jail and stoned. You could see why, from a worldly standpoint, maybe she wouldn't want to stay in with that. And Paul tells us in Corinthians, if your spouse wants to leave because, because they don't agree with, your, with the gospel, he may have been writing from the first person saying, this is horrible. But if they want to leave because they can't get on board with the gospel of Jesus, then let them go. He may have given up his marriage to follow Jesus. He suffered a lot. Church, this is the author of Romans. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be apostle and sent out to preach his good news. The good news that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that through him you and I can know the same grace and joy and peace and favor that Paul knew. And while I can't say that I'm eager to receive the same privilege that Paul received, I can say that whatever Paul had, I want. Whatever drove this man Paul, and sustained him through life and guided him through life, I want what he had. I want his purpose. I want his mission. I want his joy. I want the relationship with God that he had. And church, the good news of the gospel is that you and I can. We can have what Paul had. It's not found in a pill bottle. 
is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. doesn't matter how weak you are, how frail you are, if the grace of God can save this murdering terrorist, it can save you. It can set you on a new purpose and a new journey for your life with joy and peace never-ending. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give us all grace and peace as we study the book of Romans together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the life of Saul. Thank you for showing us that sometimes having it all in the world blinds us from having what we truly need most. Thank you, Lord, that through the life of Saul, we discover that no one is ever too far gone. I pray, Father, that as we feel weak, as we feel the weight of our sin and our failures, as we struggle to figure out doctrine sometimes, as we struggle to figure out to know where to go and what to do, as we struggle with brokenness in relationships, I pray that the life of Paul would encourage us. None of that prevented you from showing favor to your son, Paul. And none of that in our lives will prevent you from showing us favor either. Because in Jesus, you have chosen to make us very, very special people based off of nothing that we do or don't do. I pray that that grace would fill our hearts up with joy, that we would know when we come into your presence that we would know and feel and sense your favor and your love. And that as we live in that place of joy, Father, you would also help us to trust and live in a place of peace knowing that if, if everything's not okay, it will be because you have chosen to show favor on us for no reason of our doing. Father, bless our study through the book of Romans. I pray that it would encourage us. I pray that you would help us to increase our faith and our maturity. If there are areas where we're being disobedient, Father, bring us back into obedience with the tender loving care that only you can. We ask this for your glory, for our joy. Amen.